From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. In today's podcast, pseudopods abound, part one. They don't actually have to be wrapped around themselves, gobbling it up. They can actually frighten it to death with apoptosis. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. It's in every body of water, from thawing permafrost to your neighborhood chlorinated swimming pool. It's acanthamoeba, and it's responsible for one of the most painful and most recalcitrant corneal infections. But because we, fortunately do not encounter it frequently, progress in the management of acanthamoeba keratitis is too frequently undiscussed. John Dart of Moorfields Eye Hospital has just published a substantial review of acanthamoeba management. His excellent update of this topic will be presented in two podcasts. We'll hear part one today. Before we talk about diagnosis and management, can you tell me a little bit about the acanthamoeba organism? Yeah, it's it's uh, very widespread in the environment. There are two species, Castellani and Polyphagia, which are the most commonly reported to cause keratitis. There are other genera of amoeba, Hartmanella, Nagleria, and Valcampia, which have been isolated, but um, the exact role of those really isn't isn't clear. But if we take acanth amoeba, um, and that's found in um, uh, uh, well water. Um, uh, seawater um, soil is extremely widespread. About 10% of uh, patients in one large study of upper respiratory tract infections had acanthamoeba cultured from their throats. So that uh, we're all exposed to it uh, the, the entire time. In the UK, where we store our uh, domestic tap water in tanks in the roof, um, uh, we, we've shown that, uh, our, our group has shown that uh, a, a a substantial proportion of the patients with culture-positive infections were contaminated by exactly the same organism using DNA uh, studies, um, <clears throat> acanthamoeba DNA studies, exactly the same organism from the domestic tap water supply as from their eye. Acanthamoeba is present in, in domestic treated domestic tap water um, in, in probably in all countries, and that's been shown in the United States as well, in Chicago, where they've had a recent outbreak. But it's a particular problem in the UK where we store water in the roofs, in, in tanks, in houses, and the, the bottom part of the tank is above the outflow, and that remains stagnant, and you can get um, quite heavy contamination with acanthamoeba there, so people are exposed to the organism when they're in the shower or washing their faces. Now, in the context of acanthamoeba keratitis in the cornea, on what are the acanthamoeba feeding? Um, well, almost certainly they're feeding. They need their free-living organisms, so... Um, they're not parasites, and given they, they, they need to feed on cells, 
So in the organism, they're feeding on keratocytes, and they, when they're fed on keratocytes enough, that's probably when they start to insist. So they'll feed on epithelial cells and keratocytes, and they can ingest those directly. They can also kill the cells by inducing apoptosis. The mechanism of that isn't quite certain, but they don't actually have to be wrapped around the cell gobbling it up. They can actually frighten it to death with apoptosis. Who is at risk? Is acanthamoeba keratitis pretty much limited to contact lens wearers who mix their own saline? No, that's a very good, uh, it's a very good question. Um, but uh, the saline story came from a, a beautifully conducted study in the United States in the late 80s where there was an outbreak of acanthamoeba. It was then reportable to your um, serious infections uh, group um, committee for, you probably remember the name of it. The CDC. I, yeah, the CDC. And it's not reportable anymore, but at the time it was because everyone was worried about it. And they did a very nice case control study which showed that uh, the risk factors for disease were patients mixing homemade saline and uh, sitting in hot tubs, for example, both situations in which this wasn't proven in the study, but both situations in which we now know that a cantamoeba uh, heavily could heavily contaminate the water that the patients were exposed to, both from the contact lens case and in the, um, in the hot tubs. We had an outbreak in the UK, which was about four or five years later. So we didn't have a problem when this was reported in the, U in, in the USA. And then we started to notice a lot of cases in the UK, actually in my clinic at Moorfields in the early 90s. We had 51 year come through my clinic. And um, we did a case control study at the time. And what that showed was that with making our own contact lens saline up, out of tablets um, has never been practiced in the UK, so it was never a risk factor. Um, but we showed that the use of, um, the, first of all, bad contact lens hygiene, inadequately completed contact lens hygiene, and um, the use of a, a, a solution which uh, could be made up out of chlorine tablets, which had been widely used for a long time in the USA, it was in fact marketed by an American company, but was never used in America. And that was the major risk factor in, for infection because acanthamoeba uh, is not susceptible to chlorine unless at very high levels. So that's why it can survive in swimming pools, which was another risk factor I mentioned. Swimming, I should have mentioned, swimming in contact lenses in, in swimming pools, which are chlorinated, doesn't, the chlorine doesn't protect you from acanthamoeba in the pool because it's resistant to chlorine. And that was the major problem in the UK. That solution is now being withdrawn, and we did see a substantial drop in cases. It's a lot of publicity at the time, and we saw a substantial drop in um, frequency of uh, or the prevalence of amoeba. Um, after that uh, study finding. John, can I get you to talk about pathogenesis here? Yeah, well, the pathogenesis in humans isn't, isn't well understood. It's very interesting. It's been some lovely work done mainly by um, Jerry Niedercorn and Dr. Panjwani. Niedercorn's in Texas and Panjwani in Boston on the um, pathogenesis in animal models. And uh, the, the most um, successful model has been the Chinese hamster and in that, and of course, what happens in Chinese hamster uh, is not necessarily relevant to what goes on in humans, but um, it's a good model all the same. And in that model, innate, the innate immune response, where you, you, you don't have to be pre-sensitized to the organism to get an immune response, so macrophages and neutrophils, which are increasing numbers in infected tissues, without having to have an antibody response there, are essential to um, eliminating the organism. And it's been shown in that model that um, if you uh, pre-treat with steroids or, tr or, or treat the eyes, that is either by injection uh, or, or um, treat the eyes with topical steroid, 
that enhances the um, uh, severity and chronicity of infection. In, the, uh, in that model, there's been less work done on cell-mediated immunity where you have uh, stimulated an antibody response first. And in fact, if you do that by um, giving, say, an intraperitoneal injection of uh, um, the it's very difficult to, um, to obtain an infection because these, these animals are resistant to infection. A lot of humans will have antibodies, but whether they have IgA, which is probably what you need in your tears, is um, we don't know. Um, in, in animals, that's protective, extremely protective uh, against infection. So the steroid story um, in animals shows that if you use steroid but you're in, and you're not using an anti-amoebic, it certainly makes the infection worse. But that's the case with most organisms. In humans, um, a cell-mediated immune response is likely to be important, certainly in the later stages of disease and possibly even in the early stages, and may be protective in patients who've been exposed by um, a cancer amoeba, say, and an upper respiratory tract infection. We don't know that for certain. Um, but um, the, uh, the use of steroid in, in humans, we can talk about later with uh, treatment, is, is, is more controversial. In fact, there are, there's only one um, study which wasn't published in a, a peer-reviewed journal which suggests that steroid use is, is detrimental um, to treatment. Um, I think steroid use, if you're not treating, is extremely detrimental and maybe one of the factors why patients who are, pre who are treated with steroid when it's thought they have herpes do very badly, but providing you've got an effective anti-amoebic on board, then uh, and you're you're able you're able to eliminate uh, most of the viable organisms fairly quickly with that, then um, steroid treatment can be we believe can be very beneficial. Although this is still a controversial area, so in the animal model, which is not being treated, uh, you depend on innate immunity, neutrophils and macrophages to eliminate the organism. If you treat with steroids, you make everything worse. Cell-mediated immunity in the animal model actually prevents infection developing. In the human, the situation isn't quite as clear. And when the organism is present as a, a pathogen uh, in the cornea, it exists in, in two phases, the trophozoite phase and the cyst phase, the trophozoite being the uh, active bug and the uh, cyst phase being uh, not active but much harder to treat. Well, thanks very much for, for bringing that up, and I should have mentioned it earlier. You're absolutely right. And uh, the trophozoite is the, the, um, is the active proliferative stage of the organism. When it's, uh, uh, when it's got enough food, it will remain in the trophozoite stage and feed. And uh, it's using the keratocytes and um, possibly feeding on the nerves and also feeding on epithelial cells. But when it runs out of food, or if it's given a nasty environment, you start dropping anti-amoebics on it, it becomes, um, it, it switches to its vegetative or cyst form, which is extremely tough. You can you know, expose it to minus 90 degrees centigrade and it will survive. It can be dried out and it survives. And uh, there's a, a general consensus from um, uh, studies of human histopathology and studies of human disease that it's the cyst form, which in the cornea, uh, is it causes persistent uh, infection, and that the trophozoite is very easy to treat. Almost all antibacterials and antifungals will um, uh, are sidal for trophozoites, but none of them are sidal for cysts. And uh, I think that everybody agrees that it's the cyst form you have to eliminate in the cornea. Some of the use of drugs. 
uh, systemically because there are rare systemic infections with the cat amoeba causes encephalitis. Um, there have been successful treatments using uh, drugs like boriconazole, for example, and caspafungin. But um, what, uh, and those have been used in the eye as a result of the uh, few case reports of uh, successful treatment of systemic disease. But what isn't clear is whether the cyst is an important cause of persistent infection in systemic disease. The organisms will have much more to feed on in systemic disease. In the cornea, they sit there, they can eat up all the keratocytes, and then they have to go into cyst form. And it may be that, um, that one of the reasons why these drugs probably aren't going to work uh, in um, corneal infection is because the, the, the cyst phase of the organism is much more important in the cornea than it is in systemic disease. I have no evidence to prove that, but uh, that's one possible reason why these antifungals, new antifungals, and some of the antibacterials which work against trophozoites and can work in systemic disease don't appear to be effective in corneal disease. John, when acanthamoeba is present as the pathogen in the cornea, is it the sole organism involved in the keratitis? Uh, sadly not, and um, about 10% of our large case series we've reported, as you know, on three papers with uh, about over 200, um, 200 culture-positive cases, about 10% will be polymicrobial, and that's usually a bacterium with um, with an acanthamoeba, and that's one of the reasons why when you get you may get an acute infection with a focal abscess typical of bacterial disease, which then doesn't clear up. And uh, what you will have done, uh, you know, people have been treated, the, the patient will have been treated probably with um, a quinolone, both in the USA and the UK. That will clear up the bacterial component, but the acanthamoeba then rumbles on. So you get an atypical presentation of acanthamoeba with an acute focal ulcer, which is very unusual for acanthamoeba and probably doesn't happen. But that's due to the bacteria. Uh, and then the disease persists because um, you've got dual infection with bacteria and amoeba. And um, just before we started this interview, I mentioned that I, I've got a very unfortunate patient at the moment who's had two months of infection, and we're pretty certain from confocal microscopy that he's got both dual uh, fungal, filamentary fungal, and acanthamoeba infection, which is a pretty tough one to treat. John, what is the typical clinical presentation? Well, if you take patients who present with acanthamoeba alone, um, they don't get a focal uh, infiltrate. Um, they get diffuse epithelial involvement. I, I didn't believe that you could get a cancer keratitis without some epithelial component, usually um, rather gray epithelium with a punctate keratotopathy and, uh, and sometimes pseudo, quite often pseudodendrites, which is why they get um, uh, mistakenly uh, identified as having herpes keratitis. So that's the, the normal presentation. That can last for two or three weeks, and then um, the, the, the organism invades the stroma, and there starts to be diffuse stromal involvement. Um, perineural infiltrates vary a lot uh, from uh, uh, country to country, or from certainly from one report to another. In the UK, we see perineural infiltrates at some uh, stage during the early part of the disease in the first three months in about 40% of cases, uh, whereas they've, they're almost unreported from some series in the United States, for example. Uh, you can also see disciform keratitis, just like herpes. And uh, I have one case where we made the diagnosis within uh, four or five days in a patient with a slightly atypical disciform keratitis with acute swelling, just like herpes, 
but uh, definitely culture program amoeba and um, took a long time actually to to settle down. I have seen one patient recently who'd had a previous account for amoeba uh, keratitis episode who's a veterinary surgeon. He came to the hospital with um, corneal edema, which looked typical of a disciform with not a break in the epithelium, completely intact epithelium. And he insisted that we culture him for amoeba, and I agreed to do that, although I said I'd eat my hat if he had amoebic infection, because I don't believe interstitial keratitis, which is effectively what he had, can be caused by amoeba. But he was culture positive, so either our lab had muddled the specimens up, or um, he's the first case I've seen of amoeba keratitis with an in- intact and normal staining epithelium. Generally, the epithelium is involved first. Removing the epithelium, uh, there's one, one or two case reports showing that that can be curative and then the organism invades the stroma. The problem with the, the examining the infection is what you see is not what you get. So the, the focus of inflammation is just around where you've got an inflammatory response, but a bit like fungal infection, the organism probably after three or four weeks is throughout the whole cornea. The whole cornea will be involved, not just a focal area as you see in bacterial disease. Can acanthamoeba present outside of the cornea? Uh, that's that's an excellent question and one that's, uh, that a lot of people haven't asked. And I have seen some disastrous treatments carried out like complete removal of the cornea and limbus because it was thought that the inflammation outside the cornea was due to amoeba. In fact, there have only been um, four cases reported in the world literature of, of extracorneal spread of acanth amoeba. Um, there's one of keratitis, uveitis and meningoencephalitis Another of endophthalmitis, which I, in a patient with AIDS, I'm not quite sure whether, you know, that was, um, could easily be contamination from um, passing the needle through the cornea and picking up some bugs from the uh, anterior chamber, which is how it was diagnosed. And there's um, one case of retinitis following four corneal transplants and only one of scleral invasion. Now, 10% of our patients will get scleritis. I've biopsied a lot. And there's only one case reported in the world literature of acanthamoeba uh, escaping from the cornea, becoming extracorneal. There are severe complications of acanthamoeba keratitis, particularly scleritis, and much less commonly um, uh, chronic choreorectal inflammation with vascular thrombosis, which was reported from Texas. None of those have been shown to be due to a direct invasion of organism. It's some sort of bizarre immune response that's triggered by the organism affecting those tissues. In addition, the cataract, iris atrophy, and glaucoma that patients will often get, um, it's been thought that those may be due to the drugs, but uh, my own view is that it, it may well be due to um, these, uh, um, these extracorneal complications of disease that uh, we don't understand, which are probably immune-mediated. John, how is diagnosis made? I think it's important as far as possible to get cultures. And uh, what um, I recommend is that uh, in patients presenting with uh, disease that we think is due to acanthamoeba, that we remove epithelium if there's obvious epithelial involvement. And um, we uh, plate our specimens onto um, non-nutrient agar, into, into the center of a non-nutrient agar uh, gel, dish and that's sent to the lab and they cut out the uh, gel which has been inoculated and invert it over a lawn of um, E. coli which is nutrient to the amoeba and the amoeba will grow out of the, um, the, the, the non-nutrient gel onto the surface of the, um, uh, of the E. coli lawn. 
um, on the E. coli plate. So we do cultures. Um, we also send epithelial biopsies to our um, histology laboratory. They're quite difficult to handle. Um, if you have PCR, the sensitivity of that is very good. It's in the order of 90% compared to about 50% for culture. But PCR isn't routinely available, and we don't have it available in our center, although I've just found another center in the UK who are routinely doing Campamoeba PCR, and we'll be starting to use their service shortly. Um, so PCR is great if you have it. And then we have you have confocal microscopy. Now, I believe that in some centers that there may be a little, we have confocal available with an HRT uh, machine, which is excellent, marvelous resolution. But um, we've recently looked um, blindly at a whole lot of bacterial keratitis cases, and you'll see cysts like opacities in the control cases, uh, which are caused, we know by, which we, we, we know retrospectively being caused by bacterial disease. And I think that in, uh, if you've got a very experienced um, confocal microscopist and uh, he has full, the full clinical details available, then uh, very high sensitivity results have been reported for, for confocal. But I know from uh, nobody's, I don't, nobody's looked at these control cases in the way we have, and I know that it's possible to, to get um, false positives. And our sensitivity is only about 70% for confocal. If you um, use confocal as a diagnostic tool independent of all the other clinical and laboratory information. So I think it's a great way to screen patients um, uh, to see whether they may have fungus or amoebic infection, but I don't believe you should continue to treat in patients who aren't getting better uh, on the basis of confocal microscopy alone. So you could certainly start off treatment and a lot of the patients will do well within a few weeks, but if they're not doing well, start to deteriorate, I think you've got to have cultural histological diagnosis, which means taking a biopsy of histology, uh, either of the epithelium or the stroma, or um, taking further cultures to try and grow the offending organism. Plus, you make the point in the paper that confocal is not able to distinguish viable trophozoites from dead ones. No. Uh, it, 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 there are a few... Uh, confocal experts. We have some in our hospital, uh, and uh, none of them, none of our team believe we can identify trophozoites in the stroma. So that if you were sure you could identify tro trophozoite, if we had a vital stain, this is potentially possible that we could put on the cornea, which was um, specific for amoeba, and we could uh, pick up um, uh, um, pick up uh, um, trophozoites with um, fluorescence confocal microscopy that doesn't exist at the moment then, uh, for example, then, you know, you could identify, uh, identify viable organisms. But the viable ones are trophozoites. You can't identify viable cysts unless you had some means of showing with a vital stain that they're still alive. And we published a paper years ago on uh, correlation of um, histology and culture results. And patients with chronic inflammation following amoebic infection, they have non-viable cysts filling their cornea. You can't grow anything. They still have inflammation. You can't tell whether the um, uh, whether the disease is over or not uh, with confocal microscopy because you can't distinguish between live and dead organisms. We've started to look uh, in our own centre at uh, the effect of treatment on the uh, cyst that we can see in the cornea with confocal, and the numbers do drop. But um, uh, I know from the histological studies that uh, you may have a cornea with still a lot of um, cysts in there which are non-viable and that can be stoking the inflammation when they're 
when they're not uh, not viable and you can't use confocal i don't believe to tell you whether you should stop treating or not you can't sorry you can't screen the whole cornea with confocal either it's very difficult to get out to the limbus and uh, um, if you've got a, um, a scarred cornea it's very difficult to see what's going on we'll end today's podcast here and pick up at this point next time john dart is consultant ophthalmologist in the corneal and external disease service and Deputy Director of Research at Moorfields. He's also Honorary Reader at University College London. He's at the Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, United Kingdom. His paper, Acanthamoeba Keratitis, Diagnosis and Treatment, Update, 2009, appears in the October 2009 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Dart or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.